This is Chris. Welcome to episode 203 of X-Lapsed, where we are discussing a one-shot that kind of isn't a one-shot, but it's labeled as a one-shot, and it has a number one on it, despite the fact that it's chapters 7 through 9 of a story that's taking place in two other books that also have number ones on them, and it's also not very good. Um, <laughs> this is a book... That I had ordered uh, in my you know regular monthly DCBS uh, packet or I guess package, and um, just a few days ago I got a note from them saying, "Hey, you ain't getting this book because uh, we underordered or Marvel didn't supply as many as they needed." Whatever the case, I didn't get this book at uh, you know the forty the, the regular forty to fifty percent off, which. I mean, even at $2.50, I don't know that I would have gotten my money's worth out of this one. Uh, but that made it so I had to actually put my happy ass in a car, drive to a comic book store, and put five actual American dollars on the uh, on the counter in exchange for this thing. So uh, will that uh, fog my perception or the way I receive this book? Maybe. <laughs> actually, yes, probably will. Let's get into it. This is X-Men, Curse of the Man-Thing number one. It's had a July 2021 cover day. We got three chapters here. Chapter 7, Devils in Dark Rooms. Chapter 8, Adapt or Die. And Chapter 9, New Growth. Written by Steve Orlando with art by Andrea Bricardo. Letter, I'm sorry, colors, Guru ZFX. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Carlos Lau and Adam Del Rey. Designs, Tom Groneman, Mark Panizia, and Sobolski. Cover price, five whole dollars, and this one went on sale May 5th of 2021. Now, as mentioned here, this is not a one-shot, right? It's labeled as a one-shot, but it's not a one-shot, but there were two actual comics that uh, led into this. And uh, I am not going to reward Marvel's bad behavior, so I did not buy them, and I was not planning on reading them, and I, I still have not read them. Thankfully, um, our good friend Jesse DeYoung did read them and decided to uh, give a little hand here. He's uh, telling me what happened in the books that led up to this, so hopefully that'll provide us with enough context to truly appreciate this issue. Now, he starts with Avengers Man-Thing, or Avengers Curse of the Man-Thing, I suppose. And he says, I'm trying to get through all three books for the Man-Thing story. I'm done with Avengers and two more to go. The Avengers introduces Harrower, who is the great-niece of, great of Augusta from Horticulture. Ugh. She destroys Man-Thing, who then seeds himself all over the planet and starts manifesting himself as spires and demons. People catch fire, and Captain America gets encapsulated in some plant thing and meets with Ted Salas, the human form of Man-Thing, on what I will call the plant plane. So that's the Avengers issue. 
Now, Spider-Man, Curse of the Man-Thing number one. Jesse says, in Spider-Man, not much happened. Ted became Man-Thing again. There were Spider-People and the Lizard. And uh, the last page has a guest appearance from someone who knows magic. Hmm. Hope this helps out a little before hopping into the X-Men part of this. And uh, yeah, I mean, it gives us a little bit of context here. Really, when you're... And I mean, this is just a complaint that I'm going to have all throughout this episode. If you put a number one on the bo- on the cover of a book... It damn sure better be accessible. I mean, because this is just stupid. Uh, why, why didn't they just call this Curse of the Man thing number three? At least then I wouldn't have this complaint. You know, I would know that I was going into the third issue, the seventh, eighth, and ninth chapters of a nine-chapter book-sized novel or whatever the hell they used to call those things in the Silver Age. I wouldn't be able to complain so much is what I'm saying here. When you put a number one on something... You, you, you've got to assume that some people are just buying that number one issue. So, damn it, make it accessible. Do your job. Um, okay, now this first chapter here opens at Empire State University, where magic has confronted the man-thing. And I am reminded straight away that Steve Orlando has probably never heard a conversation between two actual humans before. His dialogue is really, really stilted and forced, and it will only get worse from here. Uh, This is one of the reasons why his DC work was basically unreadable to me. Anyway, we shift scenes here to Citrusville, Florida, where we meet Harrower, who is looking into a mucky pond full of weird beasties. We'll find out exactly what this is in a bit here. Now, Harrower uh, apparently wants to wipe out humanity and let plants inherit the Earth. Didn't we just do Empire? Like, was it, was it really so long ago that we can do this again without people being like, hey, didn't we just do that? I'm, but then again, who am I kidding? You, you think Orlando actually knows Empire was a thing in the first place? Probably not. Again, though, I'm reminded that uh, Marvel's got some balls putting a number one on this issue. Uh, anyway, Harrower has a bunch of unnatural-sounding expository dialogue while attempting to enter... Maybe Jesse's plant plane? Maybe the Dreadscape? Maybe the nexus of reality? Does anybody care? No. From here, we get a look at the Marvel Now Ghost Rider and his horrendously ugly design. Uh, It looks like he might be inside wherever Harrower is trying to get to. Now, she vows to break through this gate and make the harrowing multiversal. Next, we get a montage of cameos to attempt to drive home the point that this story actually matters. We see Miles Morales and Black Panther in Brooklyn. Iron Man and Captain Marvel in Australia, Captain America, Spider-Man, and She-Hulk in Manhattan, Thor and Blade in London. I'm guessing that these are locations where Man-Thing's flaming pillars or spires or whatever are at. Then we go to Krakoa, and we see one fairly inoffensive new plant, which I think we're supposed to attribute to this present crisis. Now, the Quiet Council has a sit-down over this, and Magneto immediately suggests that this is a human problem and they shouldn't get involved, which... Seems like a return to form for him. Maybe Orlando hasn't read the previous 202 issues of the X-Books since the summer of 2019? Maybe? I don't know. Nightcrawler suggests that they help anyway. They don't, by the way. They just let magic deal with it and hope for the best. And so, back to Ilyana. She's still with the Man-Thing, who motions for her hand. She takes his hand and seems to get drawn inside. Now inside, Ilyana meets Ted Salas and tells him that he'd taken her sword. Ted wants to know where he is. Hmm. Ilyana suggests hell. And the he, by the way, might be the only character in the Marvel pantheon to be more boring than Man-Thing himself, 
Belasco. I guess Ted has summoned Belasco with a ritual or something. It's not like we'd get an editorial footnote or anything to confirm this. Now, he made a deal with this devil, which mixed interdimensional magic with his blood in trying to perfect the SO2 formula. Then he was in a car accident which tore a portal into space-time and created the nexus of all realities. This is a kind of a retelling, or a, I guess a reimagining, of the Man-Thing origin, it seems. Now, Ted has been locked up inside Man-Thing ever since as punishment for working with Belasco. Now, magic suggests that, uh, you know, she might just have a way to void this deal with the devil, which would finally allow Ted to pass on into the afterlife. Only one problem with that is uh, if Ted is dead, then the Man-Thing will still be a shambling mess, but he'll be completely mindless and also quite dangerous without the uh, influence, I guess, or the inhabitation of Ted Salas. I don't know. That's where we end the chapter. The next one opens with Ted suddenly quite annoyed with magic um, because he's been living in a silent prison, man. Belasco conned him, and he isn't sure exactly what he ought to do next. I mean, how about you go away for another five years and think it over, Ted? Uh, we'll, we'll wait. Don't worry about it. Magic reveals to Ted that his powers have been poisoned, and with a snap of her fingers, she introduces him and us to her new team. <clears throat> the Dark Riders. Now, seasoned X-Fans will recognize that name as one of Apocalypse's side rackets, right? And this was from around the time of Executioner Song. Had uh, characters like Gauntlet, who... Uh, I remember in a Wizard magazine they said Gauntlet was getting an action figure, and I became quite fixated on that action figure because I could never find it, and uh, actually led to me writing an email, one of my very first emails to a comics... Well, I don't know about a comics pro, but someone in the field. I, I wrote to Garib Seamus of Wizard Magazine to ask about this gauntlet figure, and he wrote back that he had no idea what I was talking about. So, I don't know. Anyway, now this team does not get a roll call, but we'll give one give them one anyway. We have recent X-Men election loser Marrow, and then uh, all-around losers uh, Mamamax, Shark Girl, Forearm, and Wolf Cub. So uh, the Alvaro Aces represent here. We're, we're getting a, ourselves a witty, random team here. Now, Marrow tells Eliana that she ought to go full Dark Child and join in on all the fun. So, uh, whoa, deep cut there, Orlando. And so, from here, the Dark Riders appear in Citrusville and spend the next half-dozen pages fighting Harrower and her little goblins before Man-Thing ingests her. Now, she finds herself sat before horticulture and her father, who she doesn't seem too happy to see. So, uh, whoa, this character we just met has a tragic backstory. Uh, color me intrigued. Or, uh, you know, not. That is the end of uh, Chapter 8. The final chapter, thank goodness, opens with a montage, you know, more montage material to amp up the urgency. It really doesn't do too much. They get to show Wakanda, though, which automatically curves the review score of this issue up by at least two points. So, uh, by God, this is a 12 out of 10. Just ask around. Now, Man-Thing's fear pollen gimmick has been sent into the sun, so I guess the crisis has been averted. Uh, Magic and all-new Ghost Rider flirt for a bit. Uh, Ilyana threatens to give him mouth-to-mouth so long as he keeps his head flaming. (laughs) Okay, relax. Back inside the uh, Dreadscape, Harrower faces her fears. and I mean, that's kind of the gimmick of this place. You're confronted with your fears. And so we learn about her childhood, because uh, I'm sure we're all riveted by this, yes? Now, her name is Harriet Bromes. She was orphaned after her parents were killed in a fire. I'm not sure if we're supposed to think that she set that fire, but I wouldn't be surprised either way. 
She'd go on to be expelled from seven schools due to her violent outbursts. Horticulture would take her in and raise her, nurturing her grudge against humanity. Harrower then erupts from Man-Thing's body back into the real world where she is engulfed in flames, which, you know, that is, of course, a Man-Thing gimmick, yes. She begs the Dark Riders to put out the fire, but they don't. Harrower then falls through the Nexus, I think. Um, the panel kind of shatters, which might be the only cool thing to happen this entire issue. At least it looks pretty cool. After this, the Dark Riders kind of pat themselves on the back for a job well done. Uh, it's worth noting, during this fracas, Mamomax refers to themselves as an elephant. Now, I know Mamomax looks like an elephant, but would we actually call them an elephant? Like an actual elephant? Do they, do they have elephant DNA? Is there an issue of uh, zoo books dedicated to them? And I mean, while, while talking about zoo books here, they always overestimated my interest in elephants. I gotta say, uh, that, that is the introductory issue. I don't know that that was the selling point they thought it was. Anyway, from here, we shoot back over to New York City, where Spider-Man, where the Spider-Men actually reconnoitre with Black Panther, because, you know, why not? We learn that the chasms are closing, and I didn't even realize that there were any chasms. Inside the Nexus, Harrower meets up with two horticulturists, and they tell her that she and Augusta are going to have a long, hard talk. Long, hard talk. I know I'm harping here about the uh, unnatural dialogue, but has any human ever uttered such a sentence? We're going to have a long, hard talk. Uh, we wrap up. Well, I guess we don't really wrap up, but we've run out of pages at this point. Uh, we are one week later in Citrusville. And uh, we meet Jennifer Kale, a, quote, long-time sorceress. She actually refers to herself as that. I am Jennifer Kale, a long-time sorceress. Uh, anyway, she summons Belasco, who is immediately dragged into the Dreadscape, where he is confronted by Ted Salas and the Man-Thing. And it looks like this story is going to continue, but we will never speak of it again. That's where we leave it. Next episode, Children of the Atom number three, hopefully doesn't tell the exact same story for a third month in a row. But let's talk about Man-Thing, if we've, if we've got to, and I guess we do since that is the, uh, the episode we're on right now. And, well, um, it wasn't very good. I mean, even if this wasn't mislabeled as an X-Men one-shot, um, it's just not great. I mean... I'll put all the all the cards on the table here. Uh, Man-Thing bores the hell out of me. I don't find him interesting in the slightest, and trying to make him relevant by using, you know, A-list Marvel characters here do it doesn't help anybody, I don't think. I think it just drags the Avengers, Spider-Man, and the X-Men down a bit, because, I mean, this is just dull. And I know I've been dragging uh, Orlando's dialogue here, but, uh, I mean... It's, it's weird when you try to say anything that is written in a comic out loud, you know? If you try to, like, spout out something that's in a word, word balloon here, you can get, like, wildly different results here. It could be something that sounds totally natural. You know, um, let's uh, send it over to our good friend Bendis, right, who reportedly would hang out uh, places that people hung out, right? He would listen to conversations. That's how he got his his ear for dialogue. He would hang out at malls or restaurants and just listen to people interact, which is a great way to do it, even though, I mean, Bendis kind of did devolve into one snarky voice at the end of the day here. It was kind of the, a human stew of, uh, of dialogue, but 
it's a good way to do it, right? It sounds natural because whether the whether the discussions are interesting or annoying, uh, they are real. So they sound real. Then you can get something that sounds like something you, that should never be repeated out loud. It's something that reads okay, right? You're looking at it on a page, and yes, it makes a point. It makes the statement. And it works. I mean, you go back to any Silver Age stuff here where, you know, Stan Lee would cram word balloons with like 50 words, you know, something that people could never, ever say, especially in, you know, in the midst of an action. But it works because, I mean, that is the comics art form, right? It's you you make those allowances. So it could be clunky, but it's readable. Not something you'd ever want to say out loud, but it's readable on the page. Then you have stuff that doesn't look good on the page and would sound absolutely ridiculous in person or out loud, which is unfortunately where a lot of this dialogue kind of hovers, right? Uh, back in the day, uh, Reggie and I, when we were doing uh, reviews and stuff for the Weird Science DC Comics podcast, we had to read a lot of uh, Steve Orlando stuff because he was one of the big-time players over at DC. And, I mean, for all I know, he still is. I, I don't know if he's gone Marvel exclusive or if he's... Split his time, or if this is just a little, you know, dip into the Marvel universe, and he's still mostly a DC guy. You guys know me. I don't. I try not to keep up with uh, the comings and goings of a lot of creators unless they directly affect, you know, the direction of this show. Uh, so I don't know where he sits as far as uh, DC or Marvel. But back in the day, we would do a lot of reviews of uh, his work here, and one of the things that we would always talk about. I mean, if it's not totally apparent, is the unnatural-sounding dialogue. And, I mean, there were weeks where we'd get, like, two or three books written by by Steve Orlando, and uh, we would send each other lines from these books trying to uh, out, you know, unnaturally dialogue the other. (laughs) We uh, would—it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs, and uh, trying to read some of these things out loud to one another was uh, (laughs) was a pretty pretty fun experience. But, um— I mean, this is a Reggie line here. He he would say, uh, this guy has probably never heard humans interact before. And uh, that's where I, you know, that's where I get that line. And anytime I see his work, I'm automatically like biased, I guess. I guess that's probably a good word for it. I probably am coming across quite biased, but, uh, I immediately look to the unnaturalness or the forced nature of the, uh, the dialogue. So maybe this is a Chris problem at the end of the day. Who knows? Now, this isn't saying that he's a bad storyteller. Um, he's unfortunately telling a story about a character and a whole gimmick that I don't care about in the man thing. So, again, could be a Chris problem. This could be a really, really fun story if you like man thing. You know, I'm not really speaking to the quality of that. It just bored me because I don't care about the character. And I'm sure he's probably a really nice guy as well. But for me, this is kind of a perfect storm of um, indifference, I suppose. I don't care about the character here. The Dark Riders thing, I mean, what was even the point of that? Uh, they fought for a minute, and that was it. I don't know if that was a selling point. I hope we never see them again. <laughs> um, yeah, it really didn't do anything for me here. Um, I think, to sum it up, we got to go full circle here. I am beyond annoyed that this got a number one on the cover, because it was by absolutely no means a number one issue. And even if we were to call this the final issue, right? Because it was a three-parter. And the last page of this very issue promotes the collected edition, which collects all three parts of this in a trade paperback here. But we don't get an ending. 
I mean, this was a one-shot. We don't get a beginning, and we don't get an ending. We're told that we need to come back in a couple of months to, to read the continuing adventures of Man-Thing. I mean, I can't be the only person who feels a little bit ripped off by this, but uh, I think that's about all I got to say about this here. I, I don't want to just start repeating myself or go into a rant or anything. Didn't care for this, as if uh, I didn't make that abundantly clear. If you did, I'd love to. I'd love to hear your reasons as to why. Uh, definitely, feel free to uh, to write in and let me know how wrong I am. But speaking of writing in, let's head into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here, including a return. So uh, let's get into it. We got Damien talking about Sword Number Three. He says, I think I commented before that I never cared about Venom and never will. Of course, this is a King and Black uh, tie-in. He continues to say, I really don't get the purpose of Sword. Each issue is focused on different characters, so anyone you felt a connection to is not to be seen for months. There are little hints of a bigger story, like the references to a mole working for Gyrick, but ultimately it's character work and crossover. It's not bad, but it isn't a Sword story, which surely should be the aim. And yeah, I mean, that's something we talked about um, while we talked about the, you know, issues two, three, and four of S.W.O.R.D. is that, uh, sure, they're giving it a rub, right? They're giving it a rub by putting it as part of the King and Black crossover. So people who may not have been too interested or maybe were just confused by this by this X-book called S.W.O.R.D., you know, um, gotta assume not everybody knows that there was already a series called S.W.O.R.D. Uh, back in... Well, like 2010-ish, 2011-ish They might not know that this is a thing And hell, you know, they might not know that S.W.O.R.D. is even, you know, a, a mover and shaker in the Marvel Universe to begin with So you see a book called S.W.O.R.D. and it's like, eh, what is that? And why is there an X in the middle of the O? So uh, I think this was a good way to maybe introduce the concept to folks who were more on the... Uh, Mainstream Marvel, you know, who want to read the crossover, want to be completionists of the crossovers, and who maybe don't, you know, dip their toe into the X uh, corner of the Marvel Universe so much. That said, though, you're absolutely right. Doesn't feel like a sword story, which does the book a great disservice, because, I mean, you look at this, and you think about, like, um, trade collections, right? Because everything's written with an eye towards a trade here, but... You're going to get a sword trade, I would assume, that's going to include the introduction of sword in issue one, right? Then three parts of King and Black, which, as you said, are, uh, you know, character work. We get that uh, manifold issue, of course, but, uh, you know, it's odd. It's like we're still using the mid-2000s sensibilities of uh, putting together a story where you're going to get the six-parter, right? And... Uh, Marvel used to count on us to be there for all six parts of it, so they could go as slow-boil as they want, right? Uh, we're kind of seeing that here in Children of the Atom, which we just discussed. It's like we're getting these issues where everyone is kind of focused on a different member of the team. I don't know that that works these days, because, you know, when you go back to the mid-2000s, these books were like two and a quarter, right? $2.25, $2.50, maybe three bucks. Here, I mean, we're jumping between four and five dollars a pop, and not getting not getting near as much story. It's it's almost as though they're you know they're just trying to get us to not buy these single issues and just buy the trades. I, I guess that's a uh, <laughs> that's probably a rant I can go into, uh, but I won't because uh, I mean I've been droning on long enough as it is. Uh, Damien continues. 
Odd Choices. Will this work? The last Sword series failed. I don't know if they're doing better to build interest in this new version. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know if this is going to be here to stay. I don't know about... I mean, let's look at our Reign of X books, right? Some of them have been announced as uh, miniseries or limited series. We have The Trial of Magneto coming up, which I believe... I mean, that one can't be an ongoing, uh, because that would get old pretty quick. Uh, X-Corp has been uh, promoted as a mini. Sword, we don't know. Children of the Atom, we don't know. Way of X, we don't know. Am I leaving any out? I, I might be leaving something out. I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is uh, meant to be a long-running series. I don't know if anything is meant to be a long-running series anymore. So maybe they're just trying to tell these stories, you know, get them in the can and can them, right? Don't know. Anyway, Damien wraps up with... Uh, until Henry Peter Gyrick starts an X-Men fan blog, make mine x laughs. I don't think that'll happen anytime soon here. Uh, I do wonder uh, I do wonder how large Gyrick will loom over our books here in the uh, coming months here. I know there's been a lot of theories out there, and uh, probably a spoiler or two, because everybody on the internet needs to break news, but uh, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. Thank you so much for writing in about S.W.O.R.D. Next up, Evan talking about Wolverine number 10. He says, Not bad, but this felt like a two or even one issue story that was stuffed into three. Like you, the last time I checked, the holes in Wolverine's Swiss cheese memory had been filled in, thanks to the Scarlet Witch during House of M. More than likely, it's a matter of certain writers or editors liking Wolverine without a past better than Wolverine with a past. At least they didn't have him make a deal with Mephisto in order to redcon it. After all, selectively erasing a memory is much easier than undoing a marriage when you already had a death and a divorce written in and decided to skip both off-ramps. Why, yes, I am still bitter about one more day. Why do you ask? In story, we could argue that Wolverine's healing factor erased some of the trauma or harder truths that he uncovered, or perhaps something happened in a resurrection. A copy of a copy of a copy tends to lose some quality. We could also possibly blame Franklin Richards, but I have yet to fully flesh out that theory, which also includes Sinister and Gwenpool. I'd love to hear that theory, because uh, it's probably more interesting than anything that uh, would actually happen here. Because this is one of those things that, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to talk about when discussing uh, story beats in a shared universe, or picking up story beats that, yeah, that exist in a shared universe is, you play the ball where it lie, right? You play the cards you're dealt. If you come into a Wolverine story and the established, um, you know, current year stuff here is that Wolverine has all of his memories, then damn it, that's the story you're telling. You know, you you took the job to write this Wolverine, so uh, yeah, play the ball where it lie. Don't uh, don't be changing things on us here. Don't decide to ignore some elements here. I mean, you don't have to address every element, but. Don't flat-out contradict something, because uh, that's A, lazy, and B, disrespectful to everyone who wrote those pieces and everyone who uh, invested the time and money to uh, follow those stories. So uh, maybe uh, maybe just play the ball where it lies. Um, and yeah, one more day. <laughs> one more day. I've got a... Boy, I think I've got like a half of a script somewhere in my Google Docs because we were going to do a cosmic treadmill on uh, on one more day. Uh, Reggie had not read it, and uh, I had read it when it came out, and I, I had mixed feelings on it. I, you know, I'm not huge on changes. You guys know that from listening to me drone on for, you know, 200 plus episodes now, but 
I was like, I don't know, I, I kind of, if they wrote it in in such a way that made sense, I don't know that I would have a problem with it. I might not have liked it, but I don't know that I would have had a problem with it because they explained it. But what they did was the absolute laziest thing in the world here. They made they made Peter and Mary Jane make a deal with the devil and didn't get their comeuppance, which was like the most disturbing thing to me, right? I, if I were writing one more day, and of course nobody would hire me to write my name into a birthday card, much less uh, an actual comic book, I would have had it so, you know, Peter and MJ, they make the deal with Mephisto, right? They trade their marriage for Aunt May's life. Then you have Aunt May, you know, get out of the hospital bed. She's good to go. She's ready to go home. And then she's hit by a bus. You know, I think that's how it should have happened because you don't make deals with the devil. <laughs> you just don't. It's something that, uh, I mean, we, what do we learn from like any episode of The Twilight Zone where somebody makes a deal with the devil? It's always a monkey's paw sort of thing, and the house always wins. And here, that didn't happen. It was just uh, it was just the status quo that Joe Quesada wanted, and uh, by God, he was going to get it. And anybody who didn't like it was a uh, was a hater or a forty year old virgin living in their parents' basement or whatever other uh, sort of cliche um, mocking phrases that they could levy at fans who, you know, support them with their wallets. But. Uh, yeah, yeah, enough about that. Enough about one more day. Uh, Evan continues. As for Dolores What's-A-Face, it could be writer inconsistency, or maybe she is a, she is double-dealing to be able to work with the mutants and take them on if necessary. Partially altruistic motives and some psi training could explain that. You can't trust those CIA types. They're like the human X-Force. Now, I would like to buy into the fact that she's, you know, playing both sides. I would really, really like to buy into that, but... Uh, I think that's giving people too much credit. I think it is probably more writer inconsistency than anything else. Maybe we'll find out more at the Hellfire Gala, because I'm sure Ms. What's-Her-Face will be uh, on that guest list. Maybe we will find out more. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Evan. It is always appreciated. Now we're going to wrap up with a return to X-Lapsed from Jason Colby here. He is back, and I've missed hearing from you. He says, Long X time, no X correspond. I'm returning after a bit of a bad attitude break I took following X of Tens and its immediate aftermath. I find that once I've mentally turned against a title or family of titles, I get to a place where I'm unable to enjoy even the pretty good stuff on its own merits. And then there's no sense in reading. But after a bit of a break, I felt that mystical mutant pull again and decided to jump back in. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because uh, I did wonder um, about X of Tens being a... uh, a bit of a jumping-off point for some people, because, I mean, it was a 22-part story, plus a handbook. It's a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of build, right? I mean, it could be argued that we've been building for Exoswords since the very end of Hoxpox, right? This is something that was, uh, no, the seeds were planted very, very early. So we were looking forward to this, we were awaiting this, we didn't know exactly what it was going to be. All we knew was that, um... It was going to be a big event, it was going to be a long event, and it was going to include swords, which nobody really even used. Well, a couple of people used them, I suppose, but uh, it was more of a more of a sword scavenger hunt than an actual sword fight. But uh, I did wonder if people, after, after investing that much time, money, and energy into this bloated series of, uh, of X of Swords here, how many of them 
maybe you might have felt burnt. You know, you mentioned kind of turning on the books here, and I, I don't think you were alone in that. Uh, I think I think a lot of people were burned out. A lot of people were let down. And a lot of people might have been annoyed that they... There was such a large asking price, right? You, the, the the price for passage into this story was, was quite high. So if you didn't enjoy it, I, I would never hold it against you to stop reading anything you're not enjoying here. And I also hold a similar... Uh, I don't know, malady, comics malady, where I'm kind of all or nothing, right? So I've dropped books, and it's always all of them, right? I never just drop half the books here. It's always I'm all in or I'm all out, so I totally understand that. Uh, Jason continues, To save my sanity, I put a permanent end to my own brand of completionism. Prior to the break, I made it a rule that I would reach each, read each book myself before I'd listen to you talk about it. No more. From now on, I'll only read those books that I actually enjoy, and I'll outsource to my good internet buddy Christopher, who is going to read them all anyway, the task of letting me know if and when anything important happens in Excalibur or X-Factor, R.I.P., or X-Corp, or Step Cousins of the Atom, or The Indomitable Glob, or Fallen Angels Volume 3, or Explody Boy and His Volatile Companions, or You Get the Picture. And I think I'll be happier for it. You will definitely be happier and more sane <laughs> for it. Uh, you're a much uh, more well-adjusted comic book fan than I, where uh, I force myself into, well, as we see here with Man-Thing, some pretty uh, pretty unpleasant situations. So, uh, yeah, well, moving on. <laughs> Jason continues. There are still gems to be found in the X line, and I'm going to concentrate on those rather than wasting time hate-reading or duty-reading the stuff I'm pretty sure will just make me cranky. I'm affirmatively excited about Way of X. It's the first book in quite a while that gives me a taste of that feeling that made Hoxpox so special. And I'm tentatively optimistic about Hickman's upcoming Inferno title. There's the potential for an entire Tom McCann's worth of shoes to drop there, and I sure hope they do. I'm going to go and read the 1989 Inferno crossover as well. Do you have any theories about if and how the new event might be related to the old one? I don't think it will be. I think it's just a familiar name that they're using. And we did get a little bit of, uh, you know, in Cable, we get a little bit of a misdirection here. There was a mention of the Inferno Babies. There was a mention of Limbo. We we went to Limbo and saw Nastier being uh, tortured with uh, that 1,000 Miles song. So uh, there was a mention of it, but I don't know if that was just misdirection. I don't know. And, I mean, that's also giving editorial a bunch of credit there that they knew that that issue would come out right around the time of the Inferno announcement, which I'm not sure if there was any sort of conscious, uh, you know, uh, thought toward that, or even if it really did come out in in the same time period. It might just be that I reviewed it around the same time as the Inferno announcement. But I think the, you know, big theory about Inferno is that it's going to be uh, Mystique and Destiny and I sure hope it is, because that's uh, that's one, like you mentioned here, uh, uh, Way of X gave you that, that old hoxpox feeling, and I think Inferno might, if, you know, if it goes into the realms that we think and hope it will, I think that'll also evoke the old hoxpox magic, which has been missing for, uh, you know, for a long while now. Um, books like Way of X are just, I mean, I've only read the first issue so far, but it was... Boy, probably my favorite book of 2021, right? It was really, really good. And I can't wait for more. And if Inferno gives us that same feeling, then I cannot wait. Now, Jason wraps up with anyway until Marvel releases the secret adventures of infant Nathan Summers in a series simply called Babel, Make Mine X-Lapsed. Well, if you've listened to X-Lapsed a Nation, 
the uh, where we take a look at the extermination miniseries that introduced Kid Cable. There was a story in there where Baby Cable was uh, talking about what a great father Scott Summers was. Kind of a, uh, you know, pick and choose, cherry pick the good memories instead of, you know, when he abandoned his entire family. But, uh, yeah, that might have been issue zero of Babel right there. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in, Jason. And it's so great that you're back with us on this uh, X-Lapse journey. I can't wait to hear more from you. So thank you so, so much. Now, before we go, we have one last thing. This is a Monday episode, so let's take a look at This Week in X. And uh, if I were any good at this, I'd probably have like a little bumper here where it was like a news report saying, you know, this week in X. But uh, I don't have that. So let's just do it. Um, Now, on Marvel Unlimited, we have two books, right? Two books have been added. The first is Children of the Atom number one, which we discussed during episode 177, the first issue of that series, obviously. I am looking forward to hearing some folks' thoughts on that, uh, those who maybe haven't gotten to it yet. I definitely want to know how you uh, receive this book, and uh, if you feel like it's a you know a value-added thing for the already bloated line here. Also, X-Factor number 8 is on Marvel Unlimited for you. We covered that one in episode 178. So not a huge week on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, We've been getting four or five books every week, but I'm guessing that has more to do with what books shipped which weeks. But uh, just two this time, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing folks' thoughts on both. On shelves this week, we have four books here, including The Biggie. We got New Mutants number 19. We got X-Corp number 2, both, you know, uh, Hellfire Gala issues. We've got Demon Days Marico number one, which we will not be discussing, but figure I mention it for completionist's sake. And finally, we have the big one. We got Planet-Sized X-Men number one, also known as the book that will make it so I have to stay far, far away from social media for the next uh, couple of weeks because I'm sure people are chomping at the bit to spoil the experience for anyone who doesn't, you know, buy this book and read this book at 12 a.m. on Wednesday. It's social media. We take the good, we take the bad. But uh, if anybody listening is someone who would uh, spoil this for everybody, maybe maybe give a spoiler warning that's actually a spoiler warning. Like, don't just show a picture from the book that spoils the entire thing with, like, a little caption that says spoiler warning. Maybe do something else. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe put that as the second picture on your post here. Maybe put, like, a giant spoiler warning as your first so people will know... That if they want to be spoiled, they can swipe over. And if they don't, well, then they don't have to. And uh, I would thank you for it. I think a lot of people would. So, yeah, that will do it for On Shelves this week. And, uh, boy, this was a far more negative episode than I intended for it to be. I do apologize if this was a turnoff for anybody. But uh, I figure if you're going to invest any time in listening to me speak, I should at least be honest, right? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to... I'm not going to rah-rah something that I don't feel ought to be rah-rahed because I think it might get me an extra retweet or two. You know, it's just uh, if you're going to let me occupy your ear for, you know, any given time on any given day, uh, I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to get my honest opinion. So that will do it for today. If you'd like to write in and chat me up about anything you'd like, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. 
And for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, I will also mention xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where you can check out all 250-something episodes from the X-Lapsed family of shows. Just dropped the 12-part Generation X-Lapsed over there. So uh, if you want to check that series out or just see how cool all the little tiles look on the page, <laughs> just uh, head over to xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on every noise aggregation thing on this internet, I think. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, tell a friend or two, and all that stuff. It would really, really mean a lot to me. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me occupy your ears for a little while today. It really means the world to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.